Immigration is something that governments over the last decades have grappled with. Arguably, it was one of the key reasons for the Brexit vote back in 2016. Despite that Brexit vote, numbers coming into the country haven't fallen. For the last 20 years or so, we've had two or 300,000 net immigrants into the UK every year. And it's worth remembering that is quite unusual. For the 20 or 30 years before that, the numbers were very low and sometimes zero. And in the 1970s, I think even negative. So this is not something that the UK has experienced every year for the last 50 years. It is a relative recent phenomenon. One of the things that is perhaps surprising to people is that post-Brexit, the numbers haven't fallen. And indeed, in the most recent year, they've gone to record levels, net immigration of 600,000 or so last year. Now, that's partly to do with single-year effects, to do with refugees from the Ukraine and people from Hong Kong, as well as growth in international student numbers. But we've also seen significant numbers coming into higher skilled jobs from the rest of the world, even as net immigration from the European Union has gone towards zero and perhaps even negative over the last year or two. So where next for immigration? To what extent do we need immigrants in a population which otherwise would be ageing? And in a country where fertility rates are not enough to replace the population. In other words, if there was zero immigration, all else being equal, our population would age and decline over time. So to what extent do we need immigration to bolster the labour market? To what extent are we going to be forced, as it were, into higher levels of immigration because of international pressures, not least the result of climate change, which we've discussed in a previous episode? And where do the small boats fit into all of this? Where does the illegal immigration, the refugees, fit into all of this? And where are we in terms of voter attitude? Something, again, we're perhaps seeing the current government using this as a wedge issue with the opposition Labour Party. I'm Paul Johnson. I'm Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. My name is Hannah White and I am Director of the Institute for Government. My name is Anna Menon. I'm Director of UK and a Changing Europe. So let's start. Anand, can you take us through some of the, the headline numbers on immigration, what the levels are, how, they, how it's changed over time, how it relates to Brexit? Yeah. I mean, so if you just look at that year 2022, uh, and the net figure obviously is net. So in 2022, there were about 900,000 people immigrated into the UK, of whom just shy of 40% were students, 25% were on work visas, 19% on the various humanitarian routes. You talked about Ukraine and Hong Kong, 8% asylum and 6% for family unification. So it's a very, very mixed bag. That's a very big number of students. Yeah. I mean, the number of students has gone up. And of course, we don't like to talk about this in polite company, but it's intrinsic to the university funding model now that foreign students are a cash cow. And if you can fill your classrooms with those foreign students, you will make a lot of money. It's also the case that, that, that what that means is higher education is effectively the way this works, a big export sector. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there are deba debates around the margins, for instance, about whether master's students who are here for a one-year course should be allowed to bring dependents with them. That's, I think, something on which both Labour and the Conservatives have expressed a degree of concern. But yeah, absolutely. We are an export sector because we are, bring we are teaching a lot of foreigners in our universities. There is a little bit of a COVID effect, I think, isn't there, in terms of those student numbers. We think they're up because there are more people coming who couldn't come during the pandemic. So that may wash out of the numbers over the coming years. I mean, it'll wash out in two ways. One, yes, there's a slight COVID effect. And two, students leave. 
So this post-COVID wave of students will start to leave and the numbers will, will start to reflect that. My suspicion is, and this is more anecdotal from looking at universities and talking to people in universities than anything else, that actually universities will be keen to increase the numbers of foreign students simply for financial reasons. In most sectors, we would think companies want to export more to make more money. That's a good thing. Um, the difference here is that exporting education means bringing in the students. One of the surprising things, I think, to, to many of us is that post-2016 and post-actually leaving the European Union in 2021, this number this year is nevertheless the highest or among mm -hmm. the highest ever. And even when you take away the, the one-off effects, there's not much sign that Brexit is reducing the number of people coming into the country. No, that's absolutely true. I think it's changing the composition of immigration quite significantly. So we've seen a big fall off in the amount of EU immigration into the UK and a big increase in non-EU immigration into the UK. And of course, now, under this famous points-based system, people have to have jobs, people have to be earning a minimum amount to come here. So it's changed the sorts of jobs that those immigrants do when they come into the country. And I think as well, and this is quite an interesting point politically, it's changed the geography of immigration. So if you think about, you talked about the referendum in 2016, the Brexit campaign, in the east of England, I remember going to places in the east of England to do events during the referendum campaign. And people were saying, you know, in harvesting season, our population of our town can double because these East Europeans come in, do the fruit picking and services are stretched. It's already a poor part of the country. Now, I think immigration is clustered more in wealthier parts of the country because it's in those wealthier parts of the country where the skilled jobs exist that the immigrants now do under this system. So we've slightly rearranged the geography of immigration. I think that matters politically when we come on to talking about public opinion because a few thousand more Indians in London, no one bats an eye. Uh, and of course, a relatively small number of immigrants in a part of the country that isn't doing very well economically and where they're not used to immigration makes an enormous difference. But who's picking the fruit? Well, that's one of the problems, isn't it? We have this increase in immigration, but at the same time, we have people in the agricultural sector pleading with governments to make more visas available because in certain cases we've seen over the last few years, the fruit is simply rotting in the fields because there is no one there to pick it. But I think the, the sort of, you, you mentioned public opinion there, and the, the sort of counterintuitive thing is that although when you ask people about issues they are concerned about, immigration has, has, has gone up. And of course, Rishi Sunak has made the small boats issue one of his sort of five priorities for this year. When pollsters actually ask people what they think about whether there should be reductions in numbers of people coming in to do different jobs, they actually support stable or increasing numbers across a wide range of professions, across healthcare workers would be obvious, but actually people aren't averse to the idea of seasonal workers coming in to pick fruit, people coming in to do construction and so on. When you ask them those questions specifically, they think it's fine, but it's the overall sense, which is arguably more of a sort of political narrative, which we've increasingly seen, the sense of immigration being a threat and a problem is more the overarching concern that people have. Yeah, and I think that is where the small boats feeds in. I mean, up to... 2022, we'd seen immigration fall in salience quite dramatically since 2016. I mean, quite remarkably. I mean, if you think back to the 2017 and 2019 elections, it, it's striking given earlier election campaigns just how little you heard the word immigration. It just wasn't an issue. And I think there were two things at play in terms of, of shifting identities. Firstly, that that issue of control really mattered, that voters want the government to be able to say credibly we're in control. And I think with small boats, there's that palpable sense of a loss of control. So that's why it's feeding into attitudes. I think COVID played a part in 
attitudes as well because people came to realise how dependent some of our key public services were on immigrant labour. On top of that, sort of layering on top of all that, there is broad, slow-moving demographic change with each successing generation being more positive about immigration than the one that went before. So there are there are broad societal shifts, and that's very, very linked. Everything's interlinked, of course, with levels of university education and so on. So many interesting issues here. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, I mean, let's go back to your, your fruit pickers. Mm-hmm. It seems to me there is a genuine question for us as a country as to if it is the case that we can't pick fruit with our own labour force, and this is not a particularly high productivity, high mm-hmm. value added industry, well, we have a choice. We could use that land for something else. Mm-hmm. Or we could allow immigrants in to do the picking. Probably, if we can't get our own you know, native-born pickers to do it, then we have, as I say, we have a choice about whether we just carry on with that. There are other industries, other areas where we feel we have to have them. So one of the extraordinary things that happened is that in the health service, we've effectively, um, since 2016, replaced nurses mm-hmm. from the European Union with nurses from Nigeria and the Philippines and other parts of the non-EU world. And that is a choice that we have very explicitly made. And you know, we, we, we need nurses. I mean, there's, yep. there's no question about it. If we're not going to train and enough and pay enough here, then then that's something that we've decided to do. And the other economic thing that we, we've achieved, as it were, through high levels of immigration is, and this is something I hadn't actually appreciated until we published this actually earlier this year, the fraction of our adult population over state pension age hasn't increased until now, partly because pension age has gone up, but very significantly because this net immigration of two to 300,000 a year, year in, year out, it's been almost exclusively people of working age. And that, in a sense, is what's kept our demography afloat. There are all sorts of complicated issues. I would add on top of health service, actually, social care, which is another sector that has become hugely dependent on foreign workers. So there there always were after Brexit, weren't there, some important strategic choices to be made about the kind of economy we wanted to create in a post-Brexit world. And of course, as all of us know, because we talk about it virtually every week, those sort of strategic decisions are sadly lacking. But in terms of legal migration, there's actually quite a high degree of consensus between the main parties. I mean, they basically both agree that we should have a points-based system, and they basically both are talking about net immigration being too high. So the question, and I think we'll, you know, presumably going to see more on this in the run into the next election, is is how they address those two things. That are they going to tweak the points-based system uh, to try to make it generate different outcomes? And as you say there, Anand, I think the the significant thing is is the sense that if you have a points-based system, you are controlling the system in a, in and you have more more say as a, as a government over it. And, and what are they going to do about overall numbers? Are they going to try to, to reduce those? But actually, there's quite a lot of agreement. Yeah. And partly this is that age-old trade-off, isn't it, between sort of the economy and those who want to limit the numbers of immigrants. We saw that spectacular episode at last year's Conservative Party, where on the one hand, then Prime Minister Liz Truss was hinting that she wanted to liberalise the immigration rules to try and foster growth, whilst at the same time, her Home Secretary was making speeches saying, we need to go back to the tens of thousands. I mean, it was like that classic sort of tension between the very political, we need to bring immigration down, and the sort of growth-driven agenda, which is actually, we need to find a way of getting more people in because it's, it's good for growth. 
both. And the Chancellor will certainly be hoping that the OBR doesn't reduce its view about levels of immigration, because if you reduce your view about levels of immigration, you reduce your view about levels of growth, yeah. and that gives you less fiscal room for manoeuvre. And in my world, that's a fairly straightforward sort of arithmetic relationship. Now, the fact that more immigration gives the economy more growth doesn't necessarily mean it gives each individual person in the economy. Mm -hmm. doesn't leave them any better off necessarily, although there might be positive spillover effects from achieving that. But Hannah, you talked about this famous or infamous points-based system, which uh, we, we, we've heard time and again as the sort of way of, quote, taking back control of immigration, because everyone will have heard of it, but won't necessarily know what it is. Can you just tell us what is this famous thing, the points-based system? So this is an idea we imported from Australia. And I mean, they're not the only people that use it, but it is a system which is often referenced by politicians as, as an Australian-style points-based system. And what it comes down to is a set of criteria that you need to be able to tick if you want to be able to apply for different sorts of visas for the UK to come here, to work here. And then what it comes down to is factors like your work experience and your expected salary. It's actually relatively low when you look at it. It's in the low 20s. But you have to have an offer of a job which would be paying you in that range to be able to get a visa to come. And so it's not where we were with free movement when we were members of the EU, where people had a right to move here and to start looking for a job when they arrived and potentially would be here without, without a job to do. Uh, you actually have to come and to be able to show that you will be able to command a certain salary level. And of course, as with everything, there's trade-offs. I mean, this is just a lot clunkier. So the price of control is a bureaucratic system with a lot of form filling, with a lot of expense for those who are applying to come here. The whole visa system is eye-wateringly expensive, rather than the more market-based mechanism of freedom of movement, where the people could just turn up as of right because they were EU citizens. So it's less economically efficient, but it gives you a degree of political control that was lacking as a member state. Yeah, as, a, as an employer, when we were in the European Union, you effectively had a labour market of you know, all 27 countries and um, zero, uh, essentially, paperwork if you mm. employ someone who either you employ them directly from Poland or, the, or, or wherever and they, or they're already living in the country and you have them available. With this system, as you say, you've got to go through a bunch of paperwork to achieve it and clearly makes us less attractive to a lot of Europeans who would otherwise have come here. But it's, it's interesting as well, isn't it? The, the structure of our immigration is, is quite different. A lot of people right at the top of the earnings distribution are immigrants born mm -hmm. outside of the UK. And indeed, colleagues of mine looking at the top 0.1%, so people earning more than well over half a million pounds a year, about a third of them were born yep. outside of the UK. Now, that's partly a reflection of the financial services, the tech sector, yeah. that we're very attractive from that point of view. And we've also got quite a lot of people born outside the UK towards the bottom of the earnings distribution who come here for farming, hospitality, and those sorts of things, and quite geographically spread and quite different in different parts of the country. So we talk about immigration as a single thing, but of course, it's very different groups of people in very different parts of the country doing very different sorts of jobs, actually more diverse in some ways than the than the native population. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the frustrations about the, the political debate is you, it talks about immigrants as a sort of blob of immigration, whereas actually, you know, as you quite rightly said, there are lots of different sorts of immigration for different purposes in different parts of the country that, you know, and, and actually, you know, there's a very big contrast between the the attitude of the Scottish government towards immigration, they, they're desperate for more immigrants. Get it. I mean, the yeah. extraordinary thing about Scotland is it's, you know, it's part of the UK with great universities, it's quite a quite dynamic economy, but actually no one's moving there. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and of course, the mechanism the government has for ha- taking a more nuanced view of the labour market and, and what they want to be doing with the immigration system is the Migration Advisory Committee, which looks into different areas of the economy, uh, seasonal workers and all these different categories that we've been talking about and, and, and looks at where there is demand and makes recommendations to the government about what they should be doing with their migration policy. And that's a, that's a set of sort of experts. But then obviously the government and, and politicians uh, in the opposition as well have to layer on top of that their, their sort of political aims and objectives when deciding whether to take up those recommendations or not. And we, we've talked a lot about the, the economics of immigration, which has been incredibly important. And I think one of the things that a lot of people worried about post-Brexit was that we had an economy that was used to getting to 300,000 additional workers in from abroad. Mm. And if that suddenly, if that tap suddenly turned off, that was a very sharp adaptation required. And we, we, you see that sometimes in, in hospitality and elsewhere and social care, yeah. where, where some sectors have struggled with bringing people in. But as we said, overall, the levels of immigration haven't changed terribly much. And so the economics are, to some extent, positive in terms of um, supporting our demography, supporting our uh, supporting the structure of the uh, economy. Um, but the politics have always been difficult, mm. but they've changed. And we've touched on that a little bit. But but Hannah, I mean, let's, let's leave the sort of small boats for the moment. We'll come back to that. To what extent the politics of economic migration just sort of now write down the agenda, something that people don't concern themselves about as much as they did? I, th- I think they don't. And I think, again, that's a result of, of political choice. That's not something which is has been part of the narrative. But I think as soon as, as people get serious looking at what goes on in government, when they become ministers, when they start to try to, to think about policies beyond economics, but also, you know, beyond growth and so on, but also just the fundamentals, as you've said, of what you can reasonably say is going to contribute to, to growth in the economy when you're looking at the overall numbers, then they start to actually see that these things are very important. But it's certainly not part of the of the public narrative as much at the moment. Which is you know, no doubt a good thing, because I, you know, my sense is that with the way that our demography is changing, with the need for countries like ours to suck in talent from around the world, that's going to be vital to us growing over time. I and mean, one of the reasons the US does so well, I mean, most a lot of the tech startups and so on in the US are driven by first or second generation immigrants. It's a very attractive country uh, to do that. The same, to some extent, remains true in, in, in London and the rest of the UK. So that's going to be important economically. But it's going to be important to keep that political sense of control. Clearly, arguably, democratically is rather important part of all of this. Yeah, I don't think we should overstate the degree of consensus. I mean, there are rumblings, particularly on the right of the Conservative Party, about the fact that you know, legal levels of work-related immigration are too high. And there will be a debate about that. We'll wait and see how much it figures in the election campaign. It will figure in the election campaign. I think definitely more than 2017 and 2019. One of the interesting debate, I suppose, will be inside the Conservative Party, should they lose. Uh, but even Labour are making noises about sort of training up British people to do jobs that are currently done by immigrants, which sounds very worthy until you sort of factor in the costs and how long this will take. Uh, So both parties are sort of making noises about the levels of work-related immigration at the moment, but neither, as, as far as I know, come forward with a credible plan for how to reduce it without economic damage. We we, we can't talk about this subject without talking about small boats mm-hmm. or um, refugees and what you might think of as illegal Mm-hmm. Immigration. Now, the numbers here are 
much, much smaller. I mean, we're talking you know, last year of net immigration of net immigration of six hundred thousand in total. I think um, gross of nine hundred thousand yeah. people coming into the country. But actually, those who come in across the channel in the way that the Prime Minister is focusing on are, is what, 10% of that? Less than 10% of that? Yeah, I think one in 12 of all migrants are asylum seekers. So a, a relatively small number, but ve- very high profile. I mean, what, what, why, why the high profile for what is both relative to our other levels of immigration and actually relative to most many other European countries, relatively small numbers? I think part of it is the optics. It's literally the optics of people arriving on boats on our shores. You know, we're an island nation and this, you know, it's very easy for the rhetoric, the political rhetoric around it to sort of say, you know, these these are people arriving uh, without us being able to control it. And, and the reason it shot up the agenda, I think, is actually because we got relatively better at stopping people coming uh, to seek asylum illegally. In other ways. Uh, So, you know, we stopped people getting on trains at considerable danger to themselves. We stopped people getting into lorries and coming across through the Channel Tunnel uh, in that way. And so once those routes were closed off, small boats became the next worst option for people trying to get here. And that is just a lot more visible, particularly for communities living along the south coast of the UK. And so I think that's that's why it has uh, become a highly visible issue and uh, in the wake of Brexit. It's also, of course, become visible because of the hideous backlog in cases to be processed. Why? Why? Why are we? Why so bad? At them? I mean, is this? Is this? I mean, literally, is this deliberate that uh, we're making it all incredibly slow, so it's incredibly unattractive to come here because it takes years and years and years uh, before you know what's going to happen? Or is the? Is it deliberate or is it incompetence? It's certainly not deliberate. I mean, and just to put it in context, if you're fleeing war and persecution, you're not going to be put off by the fact that you're going to be, end up in a hotel that might be substandard. Uh, so I don't think that's the thing. I think it is simply, it is administrative inefficiencies, it is funding cuts, it's lack of manpower to process these claims. But of course, the, the paradox is that cost savings in those ways have become costs incurred. I think it's about £6 million a day we pay to accommodate asylum seekers now simply because of the scale of the backlog. And the politics of this is that increasingly these people are being put up in hotels around the country. And you've seen sort of in some cases protests happening around those places. And that that has inflamed the issue still further and made it more salient, which ramps up the pressure on government to toughen its language. And I think the government's been saying that ahead of the next election, it's planning to close some of those asylum hotels, which again, so far they've said they, they want to close 50. We have to think about what the distribution of those 50 is likely to be and whether they're likely to all be in constituencies, which the Conservatives uh, are particularly worried about winning in the next election. But then, of course, we've also had the the high profile moves, which have been sort of discussed in the past, but not given effect to to try to house uh, asylum seekers in what are seen as sort of less cushy seeming circumstances. So we've got this Bibby Stockholm barge off the south coast, uh, which has proven a bit of a headache, I think, for the government since they managed to commission it. And then it turned out it had some degree of Legionella's disease in the water system. And so all the asylum seekers who'd been moved on had to be moved off. And of course, this keeps everything in the public mind. But for the government, it will be thinking about what what it is able to show progress on in relation to asylum ahead of of the next election. And of course, small boats numbers are one thing. And I think there have been some positive, uh, there has been some positive movement in in the numbers this year, although I think it's always very difficult to distinguish the effects of weather and, and seasonality and so on from these things. 
but they also want to show progress in clearing the legacy backlog of asylum claims, which is, as you say, Paul, and, and I agree with you, Anne, and a lot of the problems there are down to administrative problems in the Home Office and changes to the system of how they analyse claims, which has seems to have really slowed things down in recent years. It's probably worth bearing in mind, of course, that processing these claims doesn't mean getting rid of these people, because I think around three quarters of asylum applications last year were approved. So the vast majority of these people get approved at the end of this process. But the process can be very long for them and very expensive for everyone else concerned. I mean, this is, I mean, it's worth putting this into international context in, in two senses, I think. First, uh, certainly the, the, the Mediterranean countries of the European Union have many multiples of these mm. numbers of people landing on their uh, on their coasts. I mean, can we learn anything from them? I mean, how do they deal with this? I mean, is, is this or is this one of the things creating political instability elsewhere across Europe? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the French interior minister recently was saying that his objective is to get asylum seekers, particularly those suspected as being a security threat, out of the country before the European Court of Human Rights gets to rule on their cases. And that will be absolutely fine, even if it means France has to pay a fine for doing that. Uh, so you get a similar political discourse in a lot of countries. I mean, within the European Union, it's quite interesting because you have a very clear division between East and West. Hungary and Poland have basically refused to take part in EU burden sharing schemes, saying we're simply not going to accept any of these people. So it, it creates tensions between member states because you say they land on the on the southern coast countries like Italy bear a disproportionate share of the burden and they're finding that actually their their fellow member states are being quite slow to uh, help them out I mean do Italy put them up in hotels they keep them in camps I mean do they just kind of let them go because they know they're going to go north and over the border well in places like Lampedusa where you get very very high numbers at certain times they're basically held in camps and then moved on yeah they use hotels in Italy as well but I think it's fair to say they turn a slightly blind eye to people uh, absenting themselves and heading heading over the border the other thing of course that the European Union has done is to try and strike deals with uh, North African countries. They famously had a deal with uh, Gaddafi in Libya before his fall. They've now negotiating or have negotiated deals with Morocco and Tunisia. And the aim there is to sort of stop the problem at source and to get those neighbouring countries effectively to police the EU's external border for it. Is that the direction of travel? Because one of the long-term pressures on Europe is probably going to be yeah. You know, big population growth in 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 sub-Saharan Africa. Yep. Climate change potentially creating more problems. Um, instability in other parts of the world. I mean, this is a if you think it was a problem, it's a problem that's only going to grow in expectation. I mean, do you sense any sort of sen any kind of strategy for dealing with this beyond? as it were, let's build bigger walls, let's, um, let's, let's make it less attractive, let's try and strike deals to keep them in other countries. I mean, is, is, is that the only way forward? I mean, the short answer is no, I don't detect anything even approaching a strategy, because if you think about this in the round, what you need is a collaborative long-term vision to how to deal with instability in those parts of the world from which these people are going to come and to which increasingly they'll come to Europe. Uh, but we're cutting development aid, which strikes me as one of the ways in which you can help stabilize some of those countries. And we haven't really, short of building those walls or thinking about building those walls on the sort of southern border of Morocco rather than on our side of the Mediterranean, we haven't really thought it through at all. And it is 
a massive problem awaiting us because if you look at population projections, there are going to be an awful lot of people. And a lot of those people are going to be trying to come here if their countries are insecure, if it's impossible to grow crops there because of climate change. We all know it's coming. We've been very slow to start thinking about how we can address it. I mean, I think it's it's relatively low profile in comparison to Suella Bravman's messaging around returning people to Rwanda and stopping the small boats. But I think what Jenrick, he's the immigration minister, has been more focused on this other side of the picture and maybe not as sort of upstream as you're talking, Anna, and in terms of you know actually stabilising countries in order to reduce them as sources of, of migration. But the, t- the, the talking to the, the source countries and trying to talk to them about you know, how the UK can, can work with them to reduce the flow of migrants is something that, you know, as I say, much more below the radar that the government has been talking about doing. This is a flow that flows almost entirely through the European Union. So there's not very many who manage to come directly from, um, whether it's Syria or Afghanistan or whatever, to the UK, mm-hmm. they're coming through the European Union. But just to finish on this, Anand, that sort of, to what extent do you see this as one of the biggest pressures for the EU over coming decades in maintaining its coherence and stability and future direction? A lot of these um, asylum seekers are going to come through the EU. You've talked about some parts of the EU refusing to take part in mm-hmm. the in the burden sharing. The expectation that these these numbers will increase. We've seen increased support for anti-immigrant parties in Italy and France and, and elsewhere. Is, is this going to be over the next 20 years going to become a bigger and bigger issue? It's an absolutely key challenge for the European Union. It's a key challenge geopolitically. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Europe has tended historically to have a slightly different take on events in North Africa and the Middle East from the United States. It's geography. You know, we're next door. You know, just look at a map and see how close Cyprus is to Lebanon and your jaw drops. You know, so the pressures of geography mean it's real. The pressures of national politics make it real. It's no surprise that countries like Italy have flirted with right-wing populism recently. This thing plays directly into national politics and is helping fuel the rise of the far right. And it plays into some of the most divisive splits within the European Union itself. Between East and West, partly, yes, but that there's that frustration on the part of the southern states that even those Western European countries that have agreed in principle to burden sharing haven't actually taken anyone yet is is palpable. So on all those levels, it is a massive challenge for the EU and it will be one of the big issues on the EU's agenda for the foreseeable future. What does it mean for the UK's future relationship with the EU. I know the Labour Party's been talking about trying to get a better returns deal mm-hmm. uh, should they they win the next election. But do you see this being an ongoing bone of contention between the UK and the EU? I think if you just look at the basic politics, if you were the French interior minister, would you make do a press conference saying, I understand you're all very concerned about high levels of immigration, but we've made a deal with the Brits to take a few of theirs on top of the ones already. I mean, that's, <laughs> it just, that just doesn't work, does it? So I think, you know, we say returns deal, they th- they think burden sharing. Uh, so I think such a deal is going to be very, very hard to negotiate politically for both sides. We should probably start to draw this to an end, but let's um, let's return. I mean, we spent a while there uh, talking about sort of asylum seekers and, mm. and, and so on, but let's return to the the, the bigger picture, which is the uh, uh, economic migration essentially controlled now by the UK, where the pressures will be the same. Lots of people wanting to come from the subcontinent, from Africa particularly, over over the coming years. To what extent is it fair to say that 
we've we as a country have actually been pretty successful here i mean if in the sense of the educational and economic outcomes of first and second generation immigrants in the uk are pretty positive uh, for most of those groups here um relatively well integrated compared with some other european countries and is this something we should be sort of patting ourselves on the back about a little bit when when you look at what the longer term consequences of immigration have been here or is that much too happier picture to try to paint i mean it's not it's not totally positive but what i'd say if you compare across time or across space it is largely a success story if you compare how immigrant populations have integrated here and contributed to national life to i think any european country uh, it has been more effective here. And just in a purely personal sense, you know, if I compare the Britain of today to the Britain of the 1970s, the change has been absolutely breathtaking. I mean, that's the only word for it in terms of, you know, open racism in the street was a part of day-to-day life in the 1970s. And this is a change in your personal yeah. experience. So I, I do think that actually... You know, there's more to be done, but I don't think we should discount the fact that we have been very, very successful, I think, in many ways. Also, I think there's quite a lot of lazy thinking around at the moment. So it's very, very easy, say, to criticise immigrant communities for lack of integration in our society. One of the reasons is the government has slashed the funding for English language training for courses for immigrants. So I think actually, you know, government could and should be doing more, but I don't think we should lose sight of some of the real successes. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Expert Factor. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. So please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.